Well, what about that? Help, help, help. I'm here to talk to you. It is the uh, Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, the reason I'm starting out the show with help, help, help is that's what we're here. We're here to give you help. But I know uh, from viewers and listeners that you're going to give me help. I learned so much from just talking to you. Uh, my name is Anthony Scaramucci. And for those of you that don't know me, uh, I am the managing partner and founder of Skybridge Capital, a firm I started 19 years ago. It's got three and a half billion dollars under management. And for those of you that do know me, you probably know me from the White House. I was fired after 11 days. Uh, what a tumultuous 11 days that was in July of 2017. Uh, we'll get into a little bit of that as well. Uh, so I spent a brief time in the White House as the uh, White House Communications Director for Donald Trump. Uh, that 11-day period of time has become a unit of time. So if you say, I wish you a great Scaramucci for your vacation, that's an 11-day span of time. Uh, it was brutal. Politics is brutal. Investing is a lot easier than politics. And so we'll, we'll get into that as well. But it's been a wonderful entrepreneurial odyssey of my life. I'm talking to you from the mean streets of Manhasset, Long Island. This is my home studio. Uh, we'll be doing it from the office studio as well. Uh, but I grew up out here on Long Island. My dad was a crane operator in the town of Port Washington. I went to Tufts, Harvard Law School, spent some time at Goldman Sachs, uh, built these businesses, including the Skybridge Salt Conference, uh, which is now around the world. I just got back from Abu Dhabi. We do it in Singapore. We've done it here in New York as well as Las Vegas. Um, but the number one thing that I get the biggest joy from is teaching and learning. I'm a huge book reader. Uh, I'm a writer. I've written six books thus far. Uh, my seventh book is coming out in April of 2024. Um, and so I like interviewing authors. I have a podcast called Open Book uh, where we interview authors. But Speak Up uh, is really about you and listening to stories of investing, us trying to teach you something and us obviously trying to learn something as well. Uh, before I invite my next guest on, I brought one of my favorite books with me today. This is Poor Char Charlie's Almanac. Uh, this is The Wit and Wisdom of Charles T. Munger. Um, obviously, Mr. Munger passed this week at uh, the wonderful age of 99. Uh, I just want to tell a quick story about Charlie Munger, very big influence on my life. Uh, Mr. Munger, I uh, never met him, but when I was 32 years old, I wrote to him and I said, Mr. Munger, you're one of my intellectual mentors. I've read everything that you've ever written about investing. I thought I'd write to you personally and say thank you. And could you give me a piece of advice from your life that I could take with me for the next half of my life? Uh, and he wrote to me immediately uh, and he said, well, hopefully it's not the next half of your life, but it's the next three quarters or possibly eight-tenths of your life. Uh, but he said three things to me, and this is before this book came out, by the way, but number one was to read the autobiography of Ben Franklin. Number two, he told me to uh, uh, think in long-term units of time, uh, and as it related to the stock market, for him, a long-term unit of time was forever. Uh, told me to go out and buy Berkshire Hathaway, hold Berkshire Hathaway, and never sell Berkshire Hathaway. Thankfully, I did that, and just... I want you to think about this. Uh, 27 years ago, Berkshire stock was about 11,000, the uh, Class A shares. That stock is now 520 plus thousand dollars. So just the legendary wisdom of Charles Munger 
uh, sitting tight, thinking for the long term makes you rich. And the last thing that he said in that beautiful letter that he wrote is that you are never old on this planet. You are always young, whether you're nine or 99. Uh, and he told me uh, to make sure that I started a new career or a new hobby when I turn 90. And so I'm hoping I get there. I hope you'll get there as well. Uh, but forever fresh, forever young, forever curious. Our heart goes out to the our Munger family. Uh, and if you get a chance, buy Par Poor Charlie's Almanac. That's the expanded third edition. Uh, wonderful book on investing and a wonderful book on philosophy and life. Uh, turning to our guest, uh, and this is the inaugural guest, and uh, Tarek Vancey is a wonderful person. Uh, he started a he started a business, but prior to that, uh, he was a former analyst and the CIO of sustainable investing at BlackRock. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about BlackRock. I got a ton of friends at BlackRock, uh, all these conspiracy theorists on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, they light up BlackRock and they 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 treat it like it's the great Satan, Tarek. But we both know that that's not the case. It's just a wonderful organization. And full disclosure, everybody, I, I am an investor in the BlackRock Bitcoin Trust, which we believe will eventually be converted into the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF. But Mr. Fancy, welcome to the show. Uh, you were uh, sustainable investing at BlackRock, but you're the founder of a tech nonprofit called Rumi. Uh, thank you for joining us on Speak Up, and it's our first episode. Uh, the show's about big ideas. So let's start there. Tarek, tell us about your career, how you got started, and tell us why you flipped into what you're doing now. Well, so first of all, thanks for having me. I mean, it's a, <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be the inaugural guest. You know, I think, you know, my background is not that dissimilar to yours. I grew up in Toronto. My parents uh, were immigrated from East Africa, from Kenya. And, you know, I never really saw myself ending up in finance. I, I, I eventually at one point figured out that I wanted to get a scholarship to an American school I've ended, ended up taking two buses and a subway every single day to a different high school downtown. And it, and it worked. And I ended up, you know, went to Brown, ended up graduating and uh, ended up in finance. And I spent a bunch of years doing it. You know, I worked at the end of the dot-com bubble uh, for a guy called Frank Quattrone in, in tech banking out in Silicon Valley. And you know, our group had done the IPOs of Amazon, Netscape. We did Google eventually. But I caught the, I had the worst timing. I basically caught none of the party and most of the hangover because in between, you know, basically accepting the offer and starting, it was like the NASDAQ cratered and I wasn't sure I'd have a job. And I eventually found myself into way, way into doing distressed investing, right? So I worked for Carl Icahn's former chief investment officer, a guy called Mark Wachowski and learned through and through, you know, a form of value investing where you look at different ways to, to get in including through distressed debt. And that the whole process, you know, was great. I loved doing it, but eventually I, I, I changed gears a bit and, and founded a tech nonprofit. And it was really inspired by my roommate in business school who passed away of cancer. And, you know, the, he was fighting cancer a few years, actually blonde hair, blue eyed Dutch guy went to Kenya, created a charity for education and then passed away. And this is why he's fighting stage four melanoma. And he was the kind of guy who always used to push me and say, listen, you know, you keep saying you want to do this, you know, you want to do something different. Created Rumi as a tech nonprofit. You know, we could talk about it scaled a lot. Millions of kids using it on phones, working with, you know, Malala and, and her network to, for, you know, to have it for girls in Afghanistan. And that whole process kind of led me to the point where I joined BlackRock because it was the idea was kind of I'd been on the extremes of profit. Right. But the most sharp elbowed form of it, you know, vulture investing. 
And then I've made this swing to creating a tech nonprofit and, you know, putting my savings and all into something that's in the public interest, I think. And that kind of ended up with, you know, in this world of ESG and sustainable finance, which kind of promises to do both at the same time, right? Purpose and profit. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the history of, you know, sort of how I've ended up trying to merge, you know, profit and business and capitalism with sort of the outcomes we need in society right now. Did you stay close to Frank? Still in touch with him? Not as much anymore because I started as an analyst. So, you know, a banking analyst is expendable in some sense. You know, we're just all you can eat buffet spending, you know, 100 hours a week working there. So I haven't, but I have stayed in close touch with a lot of the other guys there and a lot of people are great place. One of the things about Toronto, Tarek, is it's like the Italian capital of the world. It's the North American Italian capital. There's more Italians in Toronto than any other North American city. Uh, but I'm I'm pretty tight with Frank. You know, he he was a, a mentor of mine, along with Dick Rosso and uh, Ken Langone. Mm. And uh, like you, I've missed a lot of things in my life. That's a good reason why we're both on this show. So my uh, one of my classmates from law school was a woman by the name of Joy Covey. She was the first chief financial officer for Amazon. And so just letting viewers and listeners know, if you put ten thousand dollars and the Amazon IPO taken public by Frank Quattrone and his uh, tech investment banking group uh, in 1997. I believe it was May of 1997. A $10,000 investment in Amazon is worth $16.5 million at today's prices. Okay, So, of course, I didn't do that, uh, but I'm just mentioning it to people uh, because the next wave of finance is upon us and people have to think for the long term. Um, and and be ready. But you you have a lot of insights into sustainable investing and the sort of ESG investing. And what's the revelations that you can share with our viewers and listeners? I mean, I think, you know, everyone, you can't stop. I kind of joked that, you know, ESG is kind of like, you know, high school kids talking about sex, which is to say, they're very excited and interested and everyone's talking about it, but it's not clear anyone knows what they're doing or even what it is. And so in the last few years, we've just had, we've been inundated with, you know, sort of ideas around ESG, around metrics, around measurement. And I personally, I think a lot, the underlying concepts are really important, right? We have to get these things right, but they haven't been combined in ways that make sense, right? Because you could have better data to measure the environmental, you know, footprint of a company or its social sort of, you know, what it's doing, how to treat its employees, its customers, supply chain. But, you know, you got frameworks around that, right? So you can measure these things, but they need to be combined into products that actually you can invest in and feel like you're making a difference. For the most part, that hasn't happened. You've had sort of basically commoditized public markets funds just painting themselves green with a lot of non-binding marketing promises and kind of what I call green paint because you could sell the product at a higher fee. And you've had a bunch of narratives that I think are a bit worrying because they sort of... The, a lot of the ESG space is based on this idea that if you do the right thing, right, if you're a company that does the right thing, you will perform better and profit more. And, you know, I would love to believe that's true, right? But it's unfortunately not true. It's kind of like if if the sport of basketball gets dirty, right, and people say, we got to clean up the game. We all kind of want to believe that basketball is a place where if you play clean and you're like Steph Curry and you're a you know, great in the community, you're going to win a lot of games and everyone's going to play better. But the truth is, at some point, there are loopholes that need to be closed. And that requires, you know, bringing in the refs at some point. And I think for ESG, my concern is I'm not pro-regulation. I mean, I'm an investment banker, but I think 
whether you're left or right on the economic scale, for environmental issues, you don't really act protect the environment unless you make these provisions mandatory, right? So I'll give you an example. There's scientific bodies that look at different resources in the world, and there's they find you know biodiversity, fresh water, climate. And today on the planet, we're exceeding seven out of eight of those, right? And so if you look at that, you think to yourself, well, if we're really focused on the short term, right? Most of the incentives are the short term, people are looking at quarterly earnings. You can't really reverse that idea that people are going to exploit the environment in the short term and, you know, get, you know, basically exploit, effectively leave us worse off long term unless you actually make these provisions mandatory. And I think ESG's promised a lot, but I think we're only early in the changes that are required in the economy. And unfortunately, a lot of them are going to be pretty difficult. They require sacrifice. They're going to be costly. And, you know, we're getting from the marketing to the meat in the next few years. I want to test something on you. Are we are we all carbon hypocrites, Tarek? And what I mean by that is that we expel carbon. I mean, that's ultimately what we do. And then we feel bad about it, but it doesn't stop any of us from doing it. And so uh, are we carbon hypocrites, number one? Number two, um, the right would say about ESG, it's not fair to us because if you're a company like BlackRock, um, you're using your social values to push an agenda, but it's our money. So if I'm a conservative and I put my money in your company, I may not want you to promote that ESG. just want to get your reaction to that. And then the third the third piece of it, which I'm also very curious about, um, because you bring up the, the best point ever, which is we need to regulate it and legislate it. But then why are we not doing that? Well, so let me take the the Republican pushback on ESG first. You know, it's funny, the ESG industry kind of got up in arms about it uh, and, and they were, were kind of viewed it entirely as political theater. I think some part of it is political theater. Obviously, Ron DeSantis and other politicians have found, Vivek Ramaswamy, among others, have found that attacking ESG and BlackRock is, is a vote winner, right? People are a bit more anti-establishment and attacking big business and saying they're ripping us off or they're imposing values. Is, is you know potentially galvanizes people, but I do think underneath that they have some fair points, and you alluded to some of them around social values because some of what was going on with ESG was you have a bunch of metrics and you figure out that maybe a company is exposed because they have environmental liabilities. I look at that as kind of objective, right? That's more about value than values, right? I mean, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican if you think you're going to get dinged with fines or you know you have some kind of liabilities that you need to think about. That's going to hit the bottom line. So. Forget about your politics. That's important. But some part of ESG also started to push stuff under the S of ESG, right? The social bit that was, you know, pushing heavily on diversity and other things where the link to return wasn't clear, right? And, you know, I'm an, I'm an immigrant. You know, I, I'm a believer in diversity and inclusion as a social project. Absolutely. I think society needs it. I can't tell you honestly that adding a woman to your board for any company is going to magically unlock shareholder returns. Just because, you know, it takes time to transform society, right? As someone who's in the tech sector, you know, I can tell you, I remember, you know, something like 20-something percent of CS computer science grads in the U.S. are female. So that's a pipeline problem, right? We need to work on fixing that. And a lot of ESG was around selling marketing to people that they wanted to believe, right? Which is that, oh, forget that. We just need to, you know, make all these changes immediately. And my concern is, number one, I think that some of the pushback was fair on that, right? If there's no link to return, then you can't impose that on the shareholders. And for anyone interested, actually, in California, there was a law struck down that was mandating a certain amount of female directors. 
And actually, when it was struck down, you know, the stock the stock prices of the companies that actually had less diverse boards went up. That's not an argument against diversity for me, because I think that most other countries and certainly in Europe, they think of it as something that the government and policy can drive. Right. Can we invest better in education in certain communities? Because the goal isn't to just take it level the playing field right now. It's to, you know, really build equality in all aspects of life. But so some of the some of the pushback was around that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm see, I, this is why I wanted to bring you on, because you're so realistic and you're not you're not left to right. You're more about right or wrong, like what actually works and what's going to help the society and make it better, uh, as opposed to the virtue signaling. You know, I think uh, I, I don't know if you saw the Elon Musk interview this, this past week where he's saying, go after yourself to the uh, the advertisers. And there's a group of people that just want to slice and dice Mr. Musk and call him an anti-Semite and let's boycott him. We'll show our virtue signaling. And I think he's trying to make the point. I'm clearly not an anti-Semite, but moreover, uh, if you don't like freedom of speech, where you don't like hearing people say things that you don't like, the cancelization is not necessarily a thing that's going to work either. You know, I was, I was at the uh, FII event in Saudi Arabia a year ago. I'd like you to react to this. Uh, Jamie Dimon was in the lobby of the Ritz Carlton. Uh, he came over to me to, to talk to me about Sam Bankman-Fried, who was an investor in my company. Sam's now in jail. We're going to spend some time talking about that on Speak Up uh, uh, with Anthony Scaramucci. But uh, Mr. Dimon came over to me. We were talking, and he, he said to me, listen, we were using coal, very bad for the environment. We switched to oil, less bad for the environment. And then the natural switch would be to go to natural gas, less bad for the environment, and then eventually to renewables. He said, but what happened with the Biden administration, they went from coal, oil, Trump expanded the drilling for oil. The Biden administration cut back the drilling uh, and then it forced us to go back to Saudi Arabia, asked them to produce more. P.S. We're living in the same environment. We're breathing the same air around the world. And then ironically, because of the virtue signaling of the policy, we ended up going back to coal when if we had just stuck to the plan, the right versus wrong plan, as opposed to the virtue signaling plan, we would have been already heading into natural gas. So so I guess what I'm saying to you, because listen to your stuff, I find you brilliant. How do we break out of that yoke? How do we break out of the yoke of, hey, we all want to do the right thing, uh, but sometimes you've got to look wrong temporarily to do the right thing. I mean, cutting the drilling, as an example, did not help the society. It just increased oil prices, exacerbated inflation. And arguably, we had to go back to coal, so it made the the environment dirtier. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, look, the big challenge on some level is that we're running against the clock here, right? So time is running out, particularly for the sort of environmental stuff. And I think the challenge is that often if you don't move, I'm going to give a charitable version of the of interpretation of what the administration is doing versus a less charitable one. The charitable interpretation is that, listen, we haven't moved as fast as we needed to move. And so we're now kind of moving in fits and starts, and you have a lot of Things that were frankly avoidable if you if you know if we followed smart policy back in two thousand five two thousand ten, we haven't done that right. We're you know we're limited in the policy me mechanisms we can use. You can't add a carbon tax. You can't even increase taxes. The charitable view would be that they 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 put something together to the best of what you could do in a difficult situation when running out of time. The less charitable interpretation, I think they're both somewhat true, is that there's just a lot of marketing and virtue signaling going on, right? I mean, I think. I, I'm worried about capitalism in general being sort of subject to that, right? I mean, I'll give you an example. They did a, a survey anonymously and asked C-suite executives 
Um, do you believe your own company greenwashes? And 58% said yes, this is globally. And 68% in the US said, said yes, right? And so you kind of see that there's a divergence between what people are saying, right? What the PR teams are saying, because I guarantee none of those, you know, 68% of them believe it's happening. 0% of them are saying it publicly. And so you have this growing distrust that's happening. I think one of the challenges is that people are out there and they're just kind of saying what they think people want to hear, right? And if I, you know, you'll know, you know, Trump a thousand times better than I do, but the sense I get sometimes is that one of his greatest attractions to his followers is that they believe he's authentic, right? That, you know, not necessarily he believes everything he's saying, but I certainly believe that, you know, he's the guy taking a shit on the toilet at 2 a.m. who sends that tweet, right? right. <laughs> I'm not sure right. that I think Mayor Pete is the kind of guy would be the right. same, right? I think a lot no, of other he's ones- way, He's way more programmed. I think you're a thousand percent right. What made him successful, continues to make him successful, is he's sort of like this orange wrecking ball. He goes on that debate stage and to your point, a guy like Buttigieg is going to stay in here verb verbally. Uh, most politicians stay in here. They don't want to offend anybody, Tara. Trump doesn't care. You know, the, the, the ball's swinging like a pendulum and to wreck everybody. And since there's a very large group of people that feel left out of the society, they enjoy him uh, smashing himself into each other. The, the, the problem, though, is uh, we need the policies, yeah. some of those policies. I'm not saying that Biden policies are bad. There's some good Biden policies as well. I want to be fair to both sides, but we probably don't need all the nonsense. I think that's, I think that's what one of the issues is. But, but you um, are an entrepreneur. Okay, so tell us about Rumi. I know it's a nonprofit, but it's still an entrepreneurial startup. So tell us about that, why you got into that, and what are the benefits of it? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, so, you know, Rumi was kind of predicated on this idea that um, you can leapfrog access, you know, for communities, right? And so it's kind of interesting. We started out, I'd worked on investments to bring basic mobile phones into emerging markets like 15 plus years ago, earlier in my career. And the idea was that the technology got so cheap that you could bring mobile technology to places like Kenya, where my parents grew up. And, you know, they would just leapfrog over the lack of any landlines. It worked. It was great. And, you know, the people do money transfers and all kinds of things in these countries. Now, the idea for Rumi was that everyone in these countries you could see was going to upgrade to a smartphone. And if you have a girl in Afghanistan or in Rwanda, uh, you know, and, and all the only computer they have is that device. But now it's a smartphone that is actually a learning device. Right. And you could take all of this explosion of free learning content and connect it and bring it to them. You'll see outsized gains. And so what we did was, you know, I just kind of went for it. And in the early stages, we just kicked it off. We ended up uh, going through Y Combinator. Um, uh, while Sam Altman was there, actually, um, it's an interesting place. You see the whole model of creating these things. And Rumi was the one nonprofit, right? That, you know, Rumi's model is we use community members and educators to create the learning content. So it's kind of like Wikipedia, right? So you got to be, you have to be nonprofit. Otherwise, people are not going to like subsidize your shareholders. But if you have this utopian vision, they'll, they'll create content and they'll do work for it. And so as we started doing it in 2017, we were doing programs for girls education in Afghanistan. And we kind of came up with this really interesting insight, which is that you have people learning, but the second you give them room to, on their device, let's say it's your phone, as soon as you move it from a locked roomy device to like, you know, just an open one, all the usage drops off, right? People don't want to learn anymore because suddenly you're competing with the most aggressive tech companies in the world that have all your data and their entire job is to get you hooked there. 
And so we kind of evolved it over time into something around micro learning, right? Where you just kind of learn in quick snippets. And it's kind of cool. Today we're finding actually in North America, it's replacing social media time for young people. But it's been a real journey, but it's it's all sort of a nonprofit mission-oriented organization in the spirit of Khan Academy and Wikipedia. Well, listen, I, I, I love what you're doing, and I wanted to give you the opportunity and the platform to talk more about it. Uh, let's say there were viewers and listeners that wanted to get involved and to help you with what you're doing, Derek. Well, where do they go to get more information? I mean, they'd go to rumi.org, R-U-M-I-E. Org, check out the micro learning. And if you go through the site, there's ways you can apply to be part of the, uh, the volunteer community. But I think that, you know, the interesting thing is that it attracts people who are really oriented towards remaking learning because the majority of people using Rumi, like 90% are Gen Z, right? They're very young. You know, you think of it this way, 15 years ago, the first iPhone came out, right? That's gone from zero to $500 billion as an industry um, in a short span of time. Now there are tons of economic opportunities around that. I think smartphone recycling, for example, is one that's underutilized. But there's also something bigger around how we interface with technology and how we learn. The average U.S. teen today spends seven and a half hours a day on their smartphone. That data, by the way, is two years old and probably has increased. That's more than they sleep, right? And so if you spend all your time learning, using, talking on a small device, what tends to happen is your attention span decreases and you tend to look for quicker hits. And that can be good or bad. It's bad if it's, you know, if you're replacing substantive things with it, but it's kind of good if you could do five minutes of a micro course on your phone while you're waiting for the bus. Right. And, but, but I do think young people learn to very, very differently than uh, our generation did because our education was a captive audience. They lock you in the classroom and they tell you, here's what you need. And you don't have, you may not want it, but you know, you got to get the degree. Your parents sent you to school, whatever. But what we've found is that on a digital device, you can't just give people what they need. You have to give them what they want because, you know, think of the pandemic. They just took the videos and put them online and said, hey, kids at home, now you can watch the video. And learner disengagement went through the roof because suddenly the kids, you know, they're not in the classroom, right? After seven minutes of a boring ass lecture, they'll basically go and start looking at TikTok. And so I think we, you know, the biggest insight for me is the young people learn very differently, they consume information very differently, and they have very different attitudes around a whole bunch of different things. And I think that's a point that I think is underappreciated in the economy and society in general. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, again, we completely agree. I guess the only thing I'm worried about sometimes with the social media is the breeding of envy. You know, we, we've got these yeah. kids looking at each other through these filters, right? So the I'm looking at the person's filtered life, but I'm living an unfiltered one. 
Well, PS, yeah. everyone's living an unfiltered one, but you it creates these feelings of FOMO and some badness and envy. But I, I agree with you. Generally, uh, these phones have been a benefit. Uh, my wife would probably disagree because she hates the social media aspect of it. But the information has been wild. Just imagine uh, our generation, right? If I said to you, okay, I could give you a library card to the Library of Congress, or I could give you this iPhone 15 Max, which you could log into, what do you want? Do you want the library card and go through the Dewey Decimal System, or do you want to just have the phone for the next hour, right? So just it's incredible what we've been able to do. Um, I have a segment on this show. It's our inaugural show. I'd like you to stay for it. It's called Mooch U, as in Mooch University. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to call it Scaramucci U, but you're right. People don't have the attention span for my whole name. So we're just going <laughs> to call it Mooch U. Yep. Um, but, and uh, before I get it started, though, uh, in your two minutes of condensed learning, what is one investment tidbit that you could share with a young person that you've learned from your life in investing? In terms of how the markets or how to invest properly? Yeah, well, yeah. how to invest properly. Like, hey, let, you know, here's, here's something I wish someone told me when I was 20 about investing. You know, I would tell you that uh, the most important thing is to think independently and be skeptical, right? So my example when I was 20 was I was in the tech, I was programming, and I invested all the money I made in internships um, doing programming and research in motion stock who made the BlackBerry. I think you know where this story is going. The thing blew up. I lost most of my money. And then I became a tech banker and I started learning finance from, you know, from the ground up. And the biggest thing I wanted to figure out was how the hell did I get that wrong? And I think what I, you know, I think there's a lot of group think in markets where there's a hype or there's a trend and people jump on it. And my advice to anyone looking at it is to think independently and just look at different sources because there's so many self-interested voices out there kind of pushing certain things. There's a lot of hype. And, you know, over time, some of, I think in the last few years in particular, if you're a young person, you've been exposed to the longest period of 0% interest rates in recorded economic history. I personally don't think that, you know, that's going to, you know, that we're, we're going to sort of go back to that anytime soon. I think that the end of that is a paradigm shift. And what we're going to see in the future is that a lot of ideas that seemed like they were half decent in the last few years and are starting to get deflated now are just going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to run into the ground and people are going to say, how did we even believe that? Right. How, how did that make any sense? I, I, I love it. All right. I want you to stay for the segment. We've got questions coming up. Tarek, some of the questions are for you, actually. Uh, we, we crowdsource some questions. Uh, but right now it's time for Mooch You. The name Mooch is such a pejorative, Tarek. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, like if, if you and I were together right now, we'd reach over and mooch off your plate as an example, but just the notion that I'm creating a mooch you is a lot of fun for me, Tark. But I've got, I've got my tidbit, my two minute tidbit for everybody. I really want people to listen. This changed my life. It could change your life. Um, I read The Richest Man in Babylon by George Clayson when I was 17 years old. Again, The Richest Man in Babylon by George Clayson. It was a parable about how you become financially independent and how you create aspirational success for yourself. And I got it down to three or four sentences. So please listen. First sentence is you have to be a saver. And the second sentence is you have to build the habit of saving 
And the last sentence, and this should crystallize for everybody, pay yourself first. Uh, you got a cable bill, you got a rent, you've got a mortgage, you've got obligations, maybe you have child support somewhere. Uh, carve out in your budget 5 10% of your money, your disposable income, and put it somewhere. Put it in a savings account. Put it in a stock account. Buy Berkshire Hathaway, although I'm not allowed to give investment advice here, so I'll just give it a knock. Just buy stocks like Berkshire Hathaway, but you, you get the point that I'm making. Um, take a moment. Uh, pay yourself first. Uh, I've been doing that for the last 42 years of my life, and it has made a really big difference for me. Um, and in good markets, uh, I don't buy as much. Uh, and bad markets, I buy a lot. Uh, and this sort of dollar cost averaging has worked for me. Uh, and if you do it over multiple decades of time, uh, it creates a level of financial security. Um, OK, let's go to some questions Okay, that you all wrote in in the past week. Um, Charlie Munger, who just passed, used to say that envy and not greed drive a lot of human behavior. Um, do you agree with that statement? If so, provide some advice on how to manage envy. I absolutely agree with that statement. Uh, greed is a powerful uh, seventh sin, if you will, one of the seven sins. But I think envy is way worse. And as Tarek and I were talking about, we're staring at each other through these prisms of the social media and we have a tendency to feel bad about ourselves if someone's doing better than us. This is a normal thing. It's from the atavism, this sort of prehistoric part of our brain where uh, to get ahead, we had to have that impulse for survival. So if there was a caveman that had a bigger cave and a better looking mate, you walked over there, you hit him in the head with the rock, you took his cave, you took his mate. We can't do that anymore, of course, although I guess some of these people are still trying to do that. But the point being is you have to build the habits of moving yourself off of those primordial ideas. And uh, what M Mr. Munger says in this book, Poor Charlie's Al Almanac, is focus on yourself. Um, let's take another question. Because of the ongoing debt and government spending, do you see the ultimate collapse of the dollar? And so this has been predicted for my entire adult life. Some of you may remember the legendary Doug Casey, Crisis Investing, a book that came out in 1979, 44, 45 short years ago, uh, said the dollar was going to get crushed and uh, we were going to have a full on collapse. It didn't happen. The last 45 years have been significant economic growth and a significant boom for our society. What has happened, though, is that these debts uh, become very large. Uh, we're operating now with 120% debt to GDP ratio. Uh, you guys know this. I know this, but let me say the, uh, the stuff that you're not supposed to say out loud. We can't pay it back. There's just no way to pay it back. And so what ends up happening is we'll monetize the debt over time. This is why the Fed says 2% inflation. Guys, just to give you that number, if you got 2% inflation every 36 years, you're cutting the value of the money in half. Okay, so just think about the way it works. And so this is the reason why poor and middle-class people are having a harder time getting ahead. But no, it's not gonna collapse because remember the dollar is a relative thing and this is still the strongest economy in the world, uh, but we do have to come up with a long-term strategy to manage that debt and at least uh, to borrow less of it over a longer period of time. But I think we're okay. Um, we got a Canadian question coming up. Uh, from the man from Canada. I don't know if you want to answer this, Tarek, but this one's for you. Uh, what's going on with the Canadian bank branch closures 
and the future value of the Canadian dollar. Any thoughts there, sir? It's hard to say. I mean, I haven't paid that close attention. I know certain banks are closing branches and so on. It just sounds like a rationalization strategy is what they say. I mean, the Canadian dollar more broadly, I'm not super bullish on the Canadian economy at all. I mean, the productivity growth has been poor. There's a massively overvalued you know, real estate sector across the economy. Um, flip side is it's kind of a commodity currency. But I do think that we might see the Canadian dollar weaken. And, and I, I share the same view as you on the U.S. dollar. I think long term, it is going to lose dominance just because of the rise of Asia and a whole bunch of other uh, uh, changes. But in the near term, I think it is backed by the most powerful country and military in the world. It's the most used currency. And I think if we see instability and, and, and difficult economic times in the near term, dollar actually is, is a safe haven and it still will be for a period longer. Yeah, I think we I think we both agree on that. I think uh, uh, what Target is saying is true. These bank closures are a result of banks trying to cut real estate costs. Uh, how many of you are going into branches anymore? Most of us are doing our banking, even our check deposits off our phones. And, and so a result of which you don't need all of this real estate. So it's pretty it's pretty simple. Same reason we don't have pay phones anymore, Target. We're walking in an airport anymore. No pay phones anywhere. Yeah. We have $20 a month plan on uh, any cell phone. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about bank closures in that sense is kind of like the entire commercial property sector, right? COVID accelerated a bunch of trends around working remotely. You know, there are good and bad things we could, you know, we could debate all day if it makes a better team or not. But it's certainly the case that younger people and most of the most of the public, you know, are, are comfortable operating digitally in ways that they weren't before. So that doesn't mean that WeWork is going to get blown up in a whole bunch of office buildings. It also means banks don't need a lot of branches because people figured out for a few years that they could do all their banking without ever going to one. Right. And so we're just seeing, I think, knock on effects of the pandemic in some form continuing across the economy. We agree. Let's go to the next question. Why is deflation so terrifying? Is agriculture, manufacturing, communication improves, uh, improved productivity? Shouldn't prices fall? I'd love to get your take on it, but I'm going to be very brief on this. Remember something about deflation. Uh, my 86-year-old mother a few years ago asked me, I, I come into the house, good Italian boy, Terry, I come into the house every weekend. I buy her donuts and coffee. And I sit with her. She asked me one day, well, the prices are going down. Isn't that better for me when I go to the supermarket? And so the answer is yes, Ma, it is sort of better when prices are going down for you. Uh, temporarily, but it's really bad if they're going down systemically. And the reason goes back to debt. We own a ton of debt in our society. So just imagine this, if prices are going down, that means wages are going down. So if the average American has $250,000 of borrowings, could be their house, credit card debt, something like that. Let's say they're making $80,000 a year. Well, in a deflationary environment, they could end up getting paid 40000 But guess what? The debt is constant. And so if you are paying back debt with dollars that are worth more than the ones that you borrowed, man, that is a nightmare. That is a recipe for disaster. The last colossal deflationary spiral we experienced was in the 1930s, actually 1933. Uh, and we had a full on collapse, 25 percent unemployment, uh, 20 plus percent cut in productivity. And so we have to be very, very careful about the deflation and the potential spiral all that it causes. Uh, there is good forms of price reduction when you get improvements in productivity and technology, uh, but the Fed has to be watchful for that. What say you, Tarek? Anything you want to I, add to that? 
I agree fully. I mean, I think debt levels are at, you know, historic high levels right now, right? I mean, at the government level, at the consumer level, it seems like a lot of consumer spending has actually stayed apace in some areas of the economy because people were taking on more debt. And the problem is at some point you have this massive debt overhang that, you know, how do you get out of it? Well, you know, you either default and write it down. That's not going to happen, especially now government debt, right? Or you raise revenues to cover it better. I mean, that's also not going to happen for government debt because you can't really raise taxes. So ultimately, the simplest thing to do is to inflate it away, right? And it's a transfer of value, right, in some sense from, you know, from savers. But uh, but ultimately, there is no long-term way to get to get out of that situation, I think, even for the U.S. economy. And I'm doubtful, you know, that central banks are going to return to accommodative monetary policy. I, I, I'm kind of bearish on that for 2024 because long-term, I think they want to get to a 4% you know, inflate, you know, target even at some point, because otherwise, how do you actually get out of that? I mean, China will be upset because they own a ton of the debt, right? But on some level, I don't, you know, it, it seems like there's not an easy way out. Deflation is scary and inflation might be the only way to get out of the long-term debt cycle. We, we agree on that one. Let's go to a few more questions and then we're going to experiment on this live show with a caller. Uh, today, we'll take one caller, uh, but as we get uh, into the show, we'll take a lots more uh, hopefully you'll be friendlier to me than the White House press corps. And I know for a fact, our people calling it will be less drunk than the White House press corps. But let's go to this one. I'm curious about the conditions under which your recommendation would favor transitioning silver assets into gold. You base your advice on the gold-silver ratio. Interesting question. Of those two things, I'm going to let Tar talk quick, quickly as well. But of those two things, I am a big gold bug and a gold bull less so in silver, and it has nothing to do with anything else than the quality and the long-term nature. So I'm not really focused on the gold-silver ratio as much as I'm focused on the notion that gold has been with us as a store of value for 5,000 plus years. And so you need to own some of it in your portfolio, uh, large or small allocations, uh, uh, but I like a five-ish percent allocation myself, if not even a little more. And I'm a Bitcoin holder as well. So so these are just things you need to think about. What say you about gold, Tar? I would agree with that. I mean, I think silver has uses. I mean, gold is really a store of value. And people have always said, you know, why is anyone paying money for this thing? I mean, do you really need it outside of big Indian weddings and jewelry? I mean, the reality is no, but it has thousands of years of human behavior behind it, such that if things fall apart, things get difficult, that's built into the psyche to look for it. Mm -hmm. And so, but I don't think many assets have that, right? I think, come on, I think, in fact, funnily enough, Bitcoin is one where I feel like there could be actually, it could be the digital gold, right? We'll look at it hundreds mm -hmm. of years now and say, this is it. That being said, I wouldn't say that about other cryptocurrencies. Right. Well, yeah, we're agreeing on that as well. Because of the immutability of Bitcoin, I do believe that that's a, uh, that's a potential digital gold for people. We'll have to see how that unfolds. But full disclosure, I own a lot of that. I own some gold, but I also own some Bitcoin. Let's go to the next question, and then we'll take an outside call. Okay, so nobody knows this answer. Okay, maybe Tarek knows. Maybe he's got a crystal ball. Where do you see the S&P going next year? Uh, people that tell you they know, they don't know. Okay, and I think what Socrates said or the great Charlie Munger, the smartest people know that they know nothing. Okay, so I don't know the answer to this. But I can guess this based on where rates are going. 
interest rates are the physical gravity of financial assets. So if the rates are going to come down or trend down, they will push asset prices up. And we are seeing across the globe some surprising numbers for taming inflation. And so if that stays, uh, we could likely see cuts. My friend Bill Ackman is talking about cuts in the first quarter uh, by the Federal Reserve. But let's say we don't get there until the second or third quarter. The stock market will pick this up early. And so I'm calling for at least a 10% move in the S&P 500. But I don't know. And I'd like to hear Tarek's guess. I'm kind of bearish, to be honest, right? The market's up 20% last year, down 20% last year. It's up 20% this year. It's kind of balanced and, and, and found itself back. But, you know, I, I think um, my gut would tell me that Bill's wrong about that one, uh, simply because I think policymakers are not only looking at inflation. I think they're look, they're, they're talking about inflation. Their minutes are have everything about infla- inflation. But I think also they know that the markets have become attached to central bank policy in a way that is in some ways probably unprecedented in the last 10 years and that is destroying the core value, the, the social value of markets, right? The social value of markets is effectively we're crowdsourcing the value of different assets, right? And, you know, uh, the, the, that's price discovery. It's efficient capital allocation between savers and our bank accounts, the most productive uses in the economy. All that falls apart when you have a system where people are, not really focused on value. They're just focused on some guy, some, you know, some more money buying stuff off them. Mm-hmm. And where I got most concerned was actually when the pandemic hit. Um, because, you know, 2008, there's a financial crisis. It's a crisis about asset liability. It's asset pricing, really, right? It's, it's a financial mm-hmm. markets crisis. Liquidity dries up. The Fed throws a bunch of money to, to prevent cascading defaults and so on. Then you come to COVID. COVID's a healthcare crisis, right? It, it's not like we're actually have to stay at home, right? People can't go and do stuff and make stuff and so on. And that affects the real economy and knocks down revenues and other things. And the Fed throws a bazooka three times the size of, you know, the what was in 2008 at the markets. And my observation, and partly because at a little bit of distance in the last couple of years from the markets, the view from afar, was that everyone was sort of playing the short-term trade, right? All I, I remember when, March 2020, everyone started buying everything again. And I, I called a few friends. I said, listen, you're a credit analyst. Like, what are you seeing in credit here that makes you think this is a good idea? They, they just said some, you know, the Fed, don't fight the Fed. Tina, there is no alternative. ZERP, zero interest rate policy. All the acronyms. And I think there's a behavior in the markets that is uh, that is really just the Fed will rescue us more mm-hmm. than fundamentals. And I think that's actually a big public policy issue. Uh, mm-hmm. that they're aware of. And if that's a consideration, I'm not as convinced that they're going to lower rates as soon. By the way, side note, you might find this interesting. A few times when when Jay Powell, right, Jerome Powell was actually speaking, there was one moment when uh, people actually mentioned or someone came across that the markets were reacting really positively to what he was saying. And it was very obvious that he was frustrated, right? And you kind of hear these rumors that they, they don't they don't want to see the markets jumping because rates are getting cut as much as we think, right? That's a, that's a bit of a problem. I think they need to figure out, figure a way out of. So I'm, I'm not bullish for next year. I do think rates will be higher for longer than people think, at least until we break this cycle where everyone's just waiting for the Fed to come and rescue us, to rescue valuations. Well said. I mean, that's what makes a market. Some are bullish, some are bearish. Uh, we've got one caller this week, many callers after that. 
let's go to our caller. Uh, it's Mike from Connecticut. Uh, speak up, Mike, if you don't mind. Uh, say, say hello to Tarek as well. Hey, good morning, Tarek, Anthony. Uh, am I am I the first caller ever? You are the first caller ever. Yes, you are. You are. Uh, you're de-virginizing the show. How horrible is that? It's a bad visual. It's a bad visual, Mike. But I'm going with it today. All right. Well, it's a nice. Uh, it's nice to be with you. I've been a wealthy on um, subscriber for about a year now, and uh, just a lot of great info. And uh, welcome to the family here. You've got a great community. Um, I wanted to ask you a somewhat personal question, if I may. Um, and it's just regarding your experience in, you know, certainly public scrutiny and personal challenges like the departure from the White House, if we want to call it that, you know, and, and how it shaped your approach to things like crisis management, both personally and professionally. You know, what, what advice would you give to other people facing these kind of high scrutiny, high pressure situations? Well, I mean, listen, it's a, it's a great question. Let me start out by saying my first piece of advice is own all of it. So uh, the first time I got fired actually was from Goldman Sachs uh, and your uh, your your uh, uh, the, the head of wealthy on uh, Steve Feldman, uh, who's also uh, the CEO of Gold Bullion International, was a colleague of mine at Goldman at the time when I was fired. Uh, and it was a bummer, but I owned it immediately. Uh, so I would say when you're having bad things happen to you, uh, own them. Uh, if you're getting fired, I've been fired twice so far. Uh, the guy that fired me from Goldman is a very close friend. Uh, General Kelly, the White House chief of staff who fired me, uh, has become a very close personal friend as well. So you got to be nice to the people that are firing you. But number one, you got to own the thing immediately. Uh, I think people respect that. They respect the vulnerability of that. And they want to give you an, a, a, a second chance. Uh, second thing is, in addition to owning it, it's okay to go out there and present it. You know, I got invited on the Colbert show. I mean, if you're ever having a bad day, Mike or Tarek, you ever having a bad day, call me because I'll cheer you up. You can't, unless it's a health reason, it can't be a worse day than the one I had on July 31st, 2017, when I got thrown out of the White House, lit up by every late night comedian, blasted on 40 different uh, global newspapers, and then eventually parodied on Saturday Night Live. And so uh, to me, I just owned it. You know, so I went on the Colbert show. He asked me if I thought I was going to last a long time in the White House. I said, geez, longer than the carton of milk in the refrigerator. I think I was going to get blown out that quickly. Um, and I think if you own Wait, things. you come up with the term the Scaramucci? Uh, so technically I did. I think uh, uh, David Sachs uh, from that very famous All In podcast thinks he did. Uh, but if you go back to 2018, I was I was calling 11 day time units of Scaramucci. And then, of course, when Liz Truss, the prime minister, got fired uh, from uh, the UK, I said she lasted 4.1 Scaramucci's. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, our, our latest speaker of the House uh, before Mike took over, uh, he lasted 24.5. Uh, but I think the thing you have to do in life is you own these things. Um, and, you know, what your grandmother said to you is probably right, Mike. You know, it, what other people think of you is none of your business. Just go back to work, uh, dust yourself off, stay present and be in the game. I don't know, Tark, you have anything you want to add to that? I mean, you haven't uh, you haven't failed as brightly as me in life. Uh, but as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you've had some setbacks. I mean, listen, my first job that I got dumped from was McDonald's. 
when I was 15 and it's because I missed my performance <laughs> review because I was playing basketball. So, you know, I would, I would tell you that, listen, making a mistake is natural in life. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the great Moochie lesson for, for here is you got to own it. Right. I think people appreciate, just think of, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Anytime something like that comes up, I think people appreciate that it's possible to make a mistake. It's possible for bad things to happen, but you know, you got to own it. Right. You got to own it. You got to be transparent and honest with people. And if they if they feel that honesty and authenticity, you get past it. I think they'll they'll be human and they'll be honest. But I think what people don't like is when you dance around it, you, st you still seem like you're trying to, you know, work the game and, and spin it. And so and then people just kind of get fed up. Well said. I, you know we, what? I got to ask you, gentlemen, talking yeah. about this just while we're here, it's in the news this week. Elon, like, what is your take? I mean, he's been quite vocal on some of this you know, the advertiser pull out and he said some quite vulgar things this week. What are your thoughts? You want to take that one, Michael? I mean, Tarek for Michael. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, Musk has built his brand out of being a bit of a, a maverick in a way that is unique. And sometimes I wonder whether he is just keeping up with that, right? Just like he sends these outlandish tweets or if he really means it. And it's hard to know. But I think he kind of leans into it now because, I mean, he, you know, he's mastered getting free PR, you know, doing this. I mean, Tesla didn't even have a marketing plan really for years, right? He was their marketing plan. That may backfire for them now. But, I, I you know, I honestly, I don't know what, what he actually believes, to be honest. It's, it's tricky to know. Well, I, I mean, I just add briefly, I think that uh, he's a well-intentioned guy. Uh, but he has a tendency sometimes to have a little bit of Tourette syndrome uh, that 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 hurts him. Um, but I think he's a well-intentioned guy, and my money's on him. And so uh, I'll be looking forward to uh, new and exciting ventures from Elon Musk going forward. Uh, and I would never bet against a guy like that. That's one of the things I would say to everybody. Anyway, I want to thank our guest, the amazing uh, Tarek, R-U-M-I-E dot org. If you want to learn more about what Tarek is doing, I want to thank you, Tarek Fancy, for being on here. Uh, please call or write. You can dial in 92-THE-MOOCH, 928-436-6624. That's 928-436-6624. By the way, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, just don't try to be too Elon Musk-like or Anthony Scaramucci-like vulgar with the voicemails, okay? Because I have a nice person uh, listening in on these voicemails. But in any event, we will be live every Friday at 11 a.m. Uh, dial in. Uh, this is Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. And Tarek, thank you for being the inaugural guest. You're Thanks the man. for having me. Great. Looking forward to future episodes. All right, we'll see you, see you guys Bush. next week. Thank you. Thank you.